Take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking today at verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, or page 961, so you can follow along in God's Word. There's always a special impact, I think, when we see it for ourselves. Someday, we as believers in Christ will arrive in heaven. And if you think about it, what is it that we arrive with? What do we take with us? Basically, it boils down to our character and our spiritual fruit, efforts we made towards others. The things that matter eternally are who we are and who we seek to impact. Of course, in heaven we meet Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ knows what has eternal value. And so as Christ thinks of his church here on earth before we get to heaven, what we find in our passage today is that he wants to make sure that those who lead his church on earth will be focused on that which is of true value when we get to heaven. And so we will see that the men that God has ordained to lead in local churches must qualify with character and with the impact of serving others. So we see that today in these lists of qualifications. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy is addressing first the qualifications for elders, then deacons, and in coming weeks we'll talk about some of those distinctions But for now, I'd like us just to read the qualifications for elders in verses 1 through 7. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil." He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Don't feel sorry for me. I have cough drops. (coughs) If reading that list makes you squirm a bit, men, just know that there are, are nine of us that serve in these positions that squirm even more than you do because we all know just where and to what degree we fall short in some of these things. If this passage was just meant for the nine of us, what, there's maybe two or three of us here today that could stay and the rest of you could go home, but in fact, it is somehow meant that we would all learn from these qualities, particularly though, if you are a man, because if you are a man, you are designed to have impact on others to bear spiritual fruit. And I want to, today, we're not looking at each of these specific things in detail. We're going to do more of that in the future. 
But I'd like to look at three general things that this passage addresses. And these three are that a man who leads spiritually is ministry-minded, which relates much to the church. Secondly, a man who leads spiritually must live above reproach, referring to one's character. And finally, one who leads spiritually must commit to leading in his family, his wife and family. The first statement is about ministry-mindedness. They desire or aspire or sets his heart on being an elder. So if you desire that, he said it's a good thing. If you've never even thought about being like on a church board or elder or deacon, that's okay. It doesn't mean that you are less godly. It just means that as God works in you, he will work to develop something in you to make you care about others. Because an overseer is a good thing. And it's part of how God has made us is that we as men would want to have an impact on others. He says that leading in a church is a noble work, or you may have the term a good work. And uh, there's no way around it, but that ministry leadership is work. It's the word for labor. And so it means that there's going to be something that requires an effort. It takes time to, to plan stuff. It takes connection with people, an investment in people. It takes bearing the weight of responsibility, sometimes for the the struggles and failures of others. And later on, we see that statement, able to teach. So it means that there's going to be probably some teaching and preparation. So it's, it's work, but it's a good work that you desire to do. There are two terms in the New Testament that are used to describe this same position, like it's just to take a look at those. <clears throat> One is this term, overseer, sometimes the word bishop, not talking about a, a, a certain denominational kind of a thing, but an overseer refers more to what they do. It's the office of leading, so they are in charge and taking responsibility. The second is elder, not so much what they do, but who they are, because it's describing the same person in the same role of leadership uh, as being a spiritually mature person. Sometimes, because we're most used to this term pastor, you might wonder, where does the word pastor come in here? The word pastor is probably only used once in the New Testament, but it refers to the spiritual gift of shepherding and teaching, as I understand it. And uh, that's in Ephesians 4.11. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, we find that a pastor actually is an elder. That's, that's an overlapping term. That they are usually uh, elders who are invested full-time. Uh, we'll study that later in this study of this book. Because it says those who lead well and labor at preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. It's a reference there to financial pay. So as most of you know, Seth and Nate and I are uh, paid full-time here. You also probably noticed that, uh, as we read this passage, that the masculine gender is used, that the men who lead the church. Verse 1, in many translations, says, if any man sets his heart, it's actually a, a pronoun that could go either way, but it's almost always used of men. The uh, statement of being a husband of one wife is pretty clear. Uh, it's a man. It's the assumption when it mentions the family and managing the family, especially in the first century, that that would be the dad, the father, 
uh, who would be in charge of that. So it's pretty clear he's talking about men. And if, we, if you were here in our study last week, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, you know that it talked about men having authority in church, not women. And, of course, that doesn't always fly well in our society. Years ago, I remember getting a phone call in the office here uh, from a woman who had just moved into the area with her husband, and they were looking for a church. And uh, in the discussion, I was just kind of getting to know her in this phone call, and uh, it turned out she was transferred here. She had a, really a, a significant position in a large corporation. And somewhere in the conversation, she asked me a very direct question. She said, do you have women as elders at your church? I said, well, no, we don't. She says, well, why not? And so I opened the scripture there in my office, and I was just reading to her from chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and, and referencing some of the things we're looking at here today in 1 Timothy 3. And she had her Bible open, and she was looking it up. And then she said something like this, I never realized the Bible actually said that. That must be the right thing for a church to do. And uh, she was newer to Bible study, but she respected and honored God's word. And she and her husband did attend here for a number of years till uh, there was a job transfer that took them out again. So the scripture is saying, guys, it's us. And, and, and God is asking us to step up into spiritual leadership, whichever realm that might be. So what do <coughs> overseers do? They oversee. Oversee what? Oversee the church. Or by application, they oversee ministry. They, they are ministry-minded. They are not self-centered. A number of times I've heard a man say things about their relationship with God and maybe as an excuse of why they don't go to church. You know, I can worship God just as well in the woods or in the boat. Kind of tells you where their interests are too. Or the motorcycle. Uh, but what's the problem with that? It's not that they can't, we don't worship individually, but the man who is going to have the impact God intends is a man who says, no, it's not about me, it's about me and my family. And it's more than that. The man who understands God's plan on earth realizes that ministry doesn't stop at the lot line of your property either. God designs us to have an impact in the body of Christ. So a godly man is interested in himself, walking with God, his family, and ministering to his church family. As we, as we looked last week, and we'll see it again, that main theme verse in this chapter, verses 14 and 15, says how that we are the church, the assembly of God on earth. We are the pillar and foundation of truth. And so God has a unique place for the church and so a godly man realizes the role of the church and his need to function in the church if there's someone living on the streets we call them homeless or an orphan they don't have a family and society is rightly concerned about the homeless and the orphan because they have no one to support them, and they have no one to support. Too many Christians are homeless. Too many Christians are orphans, where they don't have someone to support them, and there is no one they are 
supporting. And sometimes uh, if, if they do see any value to the church, it's kind of as a uh, uh, temporary shelter in a time of need. It's, it's more like a food program. You, you come, come through the food line. But we sometimes fail to see that we are part of a functioning family. So the Christian, mature Christian man realizes that the church, with any of its inevitable flaws, is still his family and finds a way to function. God has meant us for impact. When you think about this desire that God has given us to influence, impact others, every man has it, believer or not. So many times the, the unbeliever or a selfish believer mistakes that drive that we have as men to make an impact and substitutes it, distorts it with the desire to make an impression, not an impact. And so in that distorted sense, we, we give our energies to get ahead, to to be somebody maybe at our, at our job, to be our, the best we can be at our, at our hobby or something like that because we have distorted, distorted God's inner desire in us to have an impact to instead make an impression. But the mature man realizes that all of those things, what we achieve, what we enjoy, what we accumulate, will all be stripped away someday. And we arrive in heaven with our character and our spiritual fruit. How did we serve? How did we benefit others? Because Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is how you served your family. This is how you served, Jesus will say, my family, the body of Christ. There are so many different gifts in so many ways. And, and obviously, that the, issue, the issue is not a title like elder or deacon or, or even a teacher because there are so many different ways that God would have us to serve one another. And that is our task to have an impact. So a godly man is ministry-minded. That's who should be overseers of a church, but it's obviously more than that. So ministry-minded. Secondly, the second big picture issue is that a man who leads spiritually seeks to live above reproach. So we notice that in verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach. The word can mean uh, blameless or not accusable. The concept is that others are, are watching and the nature of others is to notice what's wrong. But, so it's like the leader will be accused or criticized, but it won't stick because there is something... Uh, persistent, uh, there, is no consist, there is no persistent significant flaw. And when, and when he makes mistakes, and, 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 and trust me, the, those of us who are in that position know we make mistakes, but this person will be humble, transparent, and apologize freely. So this person realizes others are watching. So, so who is in view here? Who is watching uh, the, the godly man who wants to have an impact and be, here a leader, be he a leader at church or wherever? Well, obviously God sees. 
but he's not there to accuse. We are under no condemnation. On the flip side of that, you'd see Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. I was thinking of that this week, and, and Revelation twelve ten says he is the accuser. But I don't think this is about the, the supernatural observation. I think it's just our peers who may be believers or unbelievers. Are we above reproach? Are we living above reproach in our character? So that the people who know us, verse 7, if you recall, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. So the unbelieving world is, is watching us and the rest of the people in the body of Christ who know us are watching us. And because we are men who are, who are designed to have an impact, we live with this understanding that I'm not just responsible for myself, but to realize that all around me are other Christians who are like on the bubble spiritually. Kind of we all function on the bubble, like we can go this way or that way, or facing ethical decisions and moral decisions and temptations all over the place. And so we realize that all around us are people in spiritual struggle on the bubble, looking for models to say, this is the direction to go. And so to live above reproach is crucial that we are worth following, that we are someone following Christ and worthy for others to follow us. John Maxwell, a former pastor and kind of a Christian leadership guru and author and teacher, probably isn't the only man to, to, to simplify leadership this way, but he says, leadership is influence. That's, that's like his definition. Leadership is influence, and we must realize we are influencing people all the time, and, and, and men, God has said, I'm asking you guys to, to take seriously your influence because you are a man. Above reproach. So when When people see you, they will get some impression of what a Christian is if they're not a Christian. Especially if if you're one of the persons they know best who is a Christian. And if you identify with a church, this church, then their impression of what a church is supposed to be is going to come largely through you if this is, is your church and your church family. Above reproach is a broad term. It includes all areas of life, and and what's listed here is not exhaustive. In fact, people have noted that uh, nothing is mentioned here about lying or integrity in this list, actually, but obviously it's included with above reproach. So someone who doesn't tell the truth or who is unethical in business is, is disqualified in that sense. Probably just about anybody reading this list would agree these are important godly character qualities. We want them in our leaders, and in fact, we have, a, have a, a longing to be this person. The reality is we all know this is so hard. We know this is a struggle. And we know we have a sin nature that is assailing us to actually produce the very opposite of everything in this list. While in, in, in the spirit, as a, as, a, as a Christian, we long to be pure in our flesh. We long to be impure. While, while we would long to be humble, we, we always go t- towards that which appeals to our, our pride. We are not naturally content. We're naturally greedy. And so we, we have this internal struggle, but that should not cause us to despair. That should, that should assure us that we are in process. 
If you, if you are experiencing that struggle, that's called sanctification. God is using your spiritual tensions, your spiritual struggles, the temptations, and even the failures. That's no excuse for the failures, but God wants to even redeem our failures so we realize the, 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 the significance of the battle and that, that then God is calling us to humble ourselves, uh, repentance, confession, apology, and recognize that sometimes we swing and miss, but that is part of our growth. So, speaking to men again, if, if, if we are very aware of this struggle and our failure, the point is not to despair, but the point is to make sure that our, we are struggling in the right direction. Is this our goal? Because we can be a spiritual leader even as we struggle if we are going towards the right goal. If this list is our goal, you are a spiritual leader. If this is not your goal, you are not a spiritual leader. Someone has called the Christian life a long-term obedience in the same direction. And so if you are not plugged in for a long-haul, long-view uh, of, of life, this will be, be a big up-and-down series of, of big failures and, and trying hard again. And this is calling us to a character where we are growing in Christ-likeness. And then, if we are growing, don't be surprised, man, that God is going to give you more impact, influence among peers, among your family. And don't be surprised if he calls you into more and more leadership in your church home as well. A man who leads spiritually is ministry-minded. A man who leads spiritually seeks to live above reproach. And now a, a very large area, and you notice that as we read through this, is uh, a man's family, a man who leads spiritually, is committed to his wife and family, loving, caring, leading them. Uh, first of two, two emphasis is, first of all, found in verse 2. He is the husband of but one wife. He has a loyal, pure, lifelong commitment to his wife. Literally a one-woman man. Uh, this man, if married, is, uh, has eyes only for his bride. Uh, to boil down this, this marriage standard, this gauge by which we are evaluated as men, it is basically these areas. One would be to have personal purity, and the other would be to have relational commitment to our wife in a singular way. So it's both a mental purity, fidelity focused on her, as well as then a relational commitment to serve and uh, care for her. So the first aspect of purity is that a man involved in any sexual relationship outside of marriage does not qualify to lead spiritually. And, and sadly, what makes the news about Christianity too often has been when there have been high-profile, uh, particularly high-profile uh, pastors, evangelists, etc., who fail, and what area do they typically fail? It is this area of moral 
failure. It disqualifies, it destroys, it undermines whatever ministry they may have had. Moral sin is, of course, forgivable. That's what the cross is about. But clearly, a man, God is calling a man to repentance where there has been moral failure so that if there is humble repentance, a man can still have an impact, can still lead in some ways spiritually, particularly in the family because they only have him and he only has them, but it will scar. Moral failure will scar. And King David discovered the tragic tendency of his own sons to follow him in moral failure. A one-woman man. Uh, some have thought, well, this is saying, well, I shouldn't have more than one wife, thinking that this might be in a context of polygamy. Of course, polygamy was an issue in the Old Testament, but frankly, in Ephesus, where Timothy is serving, um, uh, polygamy really wasn't the issue that was already uh, non-acceptable. And so he's probably not saying just, you know, to be married to one woman instead of two, though that would hopefully be understood. One controversial question is, does this mean then that a, a, a man who's been divorced in his past is excluded from particularly this um, ministry of elder if he's otherwise qualified? Uh, sincere Bible interpreters will differ on that. It's not as clear as some things. On one hand, it would not be surprising if uh, God would hold leaders of his church to a uniquely higher standard in some sense. Leviticus 21.14 describes how Old Testament priests could not be divorced or marry those who were. The alternative view, however, would be that God in his grace, particularly in this age, would take a man where he is and for who he is now, and that would not exclude him. Uh, churches have to determine where they're going to draw uh, this line of qualification based on this passage and any specific wisdom that God uh, would give them. Um, I need to say clearly that a man who has gone through divorce but walks with God is clearly not less godly than a man who has not gone through those dark waters. In fact, uh, so many times I've observed how God has used uh, a man or a woman and in either case, who has experienced uh, divorce, to have a unique ministry and usefulness uh, that maybe somebody else uh, cannot. A one-woman man means more than marital status, of course, than it means uh, moral purity. And moral purity is more than just whether or not he avoids an affair, but whether he takes his moral, mental temptations seriously. Uh, he guards his heart. He guards his eyes. I'm convinced that as uh, Satan does spiritual battle, men are special targets. And knowing our weakness in this area, his point uh, as, against Christian men would not only be to enslave us to this sin, but specifically do, to dishearten us from spiritual leadership. Because when we are enslaved to lust, we will lose heart for spiritual leadership, sensing our own 
hypocrisy. And so we have to take these things very, very seriously. Is there hope in this struggle, men? And uh, just, I'm going to give you three, three truths. One is that as you struggle, there is forgiveness. 1 John 1, 7, 8, and 9. Walk in the light. You've got to bring it to light. That's why I appreciate how some of our men are, are, are sharing with one another in various ministries. You've got to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then, forgiveness, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. We have to rest in the forgiveness, constant forgiveness, because only grace will propel us to purity. Forgiveness, secondly, it is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You, as a Christian man, have something the world does not have. They are indeed helpless, enslaved. But we have the Holy Spirit within us, and the fruit of the Spirit is, includes self-control. This desire and the ability, the power for purity. Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit. And then don't neglect this one. The point of this passage is that our, that, that our desire, that God-implanted desire to have impact is a motivation. We have the motivation of impacting others so that we will see our lives that, you know, people are following me. My kids are going to follow me. People in the church can follow me. And so this, this inbuilt desire that God gives us to impact others becomes an ongoing motivation to purity as well. Forgiveness, Holy Spirit, and the motivation to impact others. It's more than moral purity to be a one-woman man. It means that you are committed to this woman if you're married. Again, this passage does not mean that you have to be married or that you have to have children to be an elder, but if you are, then these have to be the traits that characterize your marriage or your family. Last week, we uh, referred to 1 Peter 3, 7, about living with your wives in an understanding or sensitive way because God doesn't hear your prayers, men, if you're not considerate and sensitive to your wife. That's a very big deal. Uh, Today, I'd like to take our attention to a very important classic passage about being a, a, a godly husband in Ephesians 5. And as we read, I just want to read this passage with you. And as we do, be looking for these three characteristics that means to love sacrificially, lead spiritually, and care selflessly. Number one, about loving sacrificially is the basis. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The cross. There is nothing bigger for us as husbands than to realize that our model for being a husband is about sacrifice because the cross is about sacrifice. So it's not about being fair. It's about being sacrificial. That he might, this is now referring to Christ in the church, that he might sanctify her, all of us, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, what is on the mind of Christ as he looks at the church is, how can I help my people, my family, be sanctified, become holy? That's spiritual leadership. And so as we view our wife, is that our goal? How, 
how can I pray for her that she would grow in her sanctification and godliness? And then finally in verse 28, if in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. That's describing the, the oneness, the bond that marriage creates so that you are not enemies or competitors. You are the same unit. And so when, you know, as we, if, when we attack each other, if you will, we're attacking ourselves. When we love each other, we're actually doing the best in loving ourselves because we're one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, right? But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So this is this selfless caring. So sacrifice, first of all. If Christ gave up his life for us, Men, what is God calling us to give up for her? A time commitment, attention, a sensitivity, grace in some area. What is the sacrifice for us? Second, what does it mean to lead her spiritually and care about her sanctification, her holiness? What is it I... I have I ever been a, a, a barrier to something that she needs spiritually? I say, no, you can't do that because I, I need you over here. Uh, what, have, what can I model for her spiritually? Something, something where, where it's not like I'm uh, doing it uh, to act superior. I'm better than you. But simply modeling some trait of godliness. And what is it we can do together? So that, our, that our, our commitment is together in the church family. We have the same heart for ministry, etc. So leading spiritually and thirdly, caring selflessly. What does that mean to nourish and to cherish? What is it that would make her feel valued, honored, cared for? That's our task. And it's saying that how can we lead the church with care if we don't lead our, our wives that way. Everything you find in the New Testament about being a godly husband, and uh, there aren't a lot of passages, but the ones that you find are always about connecting relationally, that, that our relationship is what is going to matter in the marriage. Whenever you're talking about a relationship, you are talking about the emotional side of us we're all emotional our emotions are driving most of what we do so how are we doing as emotional leaders men i'll just be blunt men we cannot be the negative one in a relationship we can't we can't afford it um It's obvious that wives encourage husbands, husbands encourage wives, but we are the leaders. We have to lead in encouragement and affirmation. It doesn't, it, it, nothing about leadership means it's equal. Leadership means we take the lead. What, what would it, um, how effective would a head coach be if he was persistently complaining about everything. The management, 
the fans, the equipment, the parents, the players. How effective will this head coach be when he's marked by negative complaining? How long would a head coach last if at the beginning of every season he'd look around and say, well, don't have much talent this year. Or at a halftime of a rough game would say, I don't think we have a chance anymore. He'd say, this guy has no coach. He can't lead. Because we have to be able to be emotionally strong enough to put those things aside and deal with them so that we can be the encouragers, the affirmers, the, the positive ones. Now, what you're probably saying, man, is but we get discouraged too, and we do. And why is it you pray for your husbands? Please realize that. They aren't strong all the time at all. They're weak. They're as weak emotionally you, as you are, just don't admit it as much, maybe. So what do we do? I would refer you to David, King David in the Psalms. Because David was this amazing leader who got discouraged a lot. And the good thing is, he wrote it all down for us, how he was feeling. There's a remarkable number of, of, of psalms that begin with complaint to God. And what do they end with? Praise. He just took us through the process. We can complain to God all we want. Guys, he can handle it. In fact, it's sometimes good to verbalize it. You gotta, in fact, sometimes audibly, and then you hear yourself. But if you're talking to God, you suddenly begin to realize the resources that he has and, and the heart he has, and, and that's how complaint turns to praise. And so you find in the Psalms that while he's experiencing hard things, he is able to praise God for good things and he emerges as a strong and influential leader becoming a one woman man is someone who pays attention to personal purity but this relational commitment to his wife just as importantly verses 4 and 5 extend this leadership then to our family meaning our children, including our children. Verse 4, he must manage his own family. Some of you have the word household. He must manage his own family or household well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Then it's explained, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Uh, so a family is a proving ground for church leadership. If uh, we can't lead effectively in the home. Don't export it to the church. A household of that day would include not only children and parenting issues, but it would include the finances. Often households were several generations or had servants or, or, or something like that. But in other words, you're, 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 you're a manager. You're in charge of all this stuff. And it's where we are tested first. Paul chose two different terms for leadership in verses 4 and 5. Will you notice in verse 4, manage 
the family, verse 5, manage the family. But then the comparison is made to church leadership, and he uses a different term, take care of the church. Manage family, take care of the church. It's all part of the same leadership process, but these terms are not identical, although they are similar and overlapping. Let's take a look at them. How dads, as well as elders, then lead. On one hand, we manage the home, and the word manage is really an authority term. We are in charge. That means we are most accountable. And so if there is, you you cannot subcontract to your wife. She may be the one who is better at something, but we are ultimately accountable and in charge. This isn't about who's doing the work, it's who's taking responsibility for it. Manage the home. But then when he compares it to the church leadership, he says managing the family is the same as taking care of the church. But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a word with a different tone. The idea is more to shepherd, to help, to serve, and in fact, to be the most compassionate, not just the most accountable. It's a rare term in the New Testament. This term where he says to take care of the church is only used one other time in the Greek language of the New Testament. And it's when Jesus was describing the the story of the Good Samaritan. He said how, you know, the the man who was, was robbed, he was a victim of robbery, two people passed by and so forth. But the man, there's a man who took care of him, Jesus said, this term. What did he do? He had pity on him. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his donkey. And he paid the bill when he took him to the inn. That's what leaders do. We have to be the ones who care about the needs as well as the ones who are in charge. And men, we don't get to choose which one of these we are. We hold these both in balance, authority and compassion. The authority in verse 4 is pretty clear when it comes to our children obeying and see that his children obey him with proper respect and we all say that sure went well didn't it <laughs> it's a it's a challenge it's a good thing that children start life young because there is a a a stage at which um, we can require their obedience we can enforce it okay So those are very important early years when we can enforce the obedience because we well know that as our children age, we are less and less able to enforce it. And indeed, we become as parents less and less accountable for their obedience as we are handing them over to God and to their accountability with God. But if we want to have an impact on the next generation, obviously, obedience is crucial. This isn't a seminar or a sermon on parenting, but I would urge anyone with children in the home to do a serious study of some of the parenting issues that you'd find in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, 
as well as statements in uh, Ephesians and Colossians of the New Testament, especially because these are vital issues for being men of, of impact. What gives us, though, the relationship or the relational um, credibility, relational capital to require obedience is that second term, we're the compassionate one. We aren't just the, the one, wait till your father talks to you, that we're just laying down the law, we're the hardline guy. We have to be both so that they know that we as parents, we as dads, have a commitment to grace and, and care and, and, we, and we listen. Some of the things that maybe our wife indeed is better at, but we work at because it's so important. Taking care of the church is going to require that. And as elders and deacons, and we gather uh, to talk about the church, we are talking about caring about needs. Much of the time, it's, a, it, it's spiritual needs, it's physical needs, it's sometimes financial needs, the deacons fund that we, we have. And so we have to care about needs. We have to listen. We have to, this is taking care of the church. We have to help. We have to be relational. We have to encourage. We have to affirm. And we, we do it at home. We practice at home. We, we do it at church. That's, there's, there's a consistency to what God is looking for when he looks for leaders. Take care of the church. We've already seen in chapter 1 that uh, being a leader includes um, defending and preserving the truth, right? Deal with the false teachers, Timothy. We've seen in chapter 2 that to lead a church means that we must um, stay focused on the gospel. I was made an apostle, a herald. There's just one mediator between God and man, and we preach Jesus Christ, the ransom for many. So, so leadership includes defending the truth or the pillar of the foundation. It means accomplishing the purpose, the task. But men and leaders, we, we have to pay attention to what's inside, who we are, into knowing that we have an impact. You've maybe heard this saying, if you think you're a leader and no one is following, you're just taking a walk. Kind of funny, kind of sobering, because it's true. So, if indeed someone is following, what direction are we going? Is this the template of our life? Because this is what will matter when we arrive in heaven someday. The things that will matter are who we are and who we sought to impact everything else is stripped away and men were given the key privilege and responsibility to do that